Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Picket Gates, and you'll find a place called Mount Calvary, and that's the way to have the burden of your sin taken care of. And so Christian has this huge backpack of sin. He goes through the Wicked Gate, the only way of salvation. He goes to Mount Calvary. He kneels before the cross. He receives forgiveness. The, the, the sin burden rolls off his back to be buried forevermore in the earth. And so the rest of the book is the story of Christian on his journey. And he's journeying to heaven, the celestial city, his true and final home. And so there's many scenes in the book that give descriptions of the Christian life. And there's one scene where Christian and his friend Hopeful are trapped in what's called Doubting Castle. In Doubting Castle, they are taken captive by a giant. And the giant's name is Giant Despair. And Giant Despair beats them and flogs them and they experience depression. And there's a moment in in the part of the story where where Christian's about ready to commit suicide. And, And Hopeful talks him out of it. And it's Saturday night, almost midnight on Saturday night. And on Sunday morning, the giant is going to kill them. He's going to mercilessly beat them to a pulp and kill them. And they're despairing. And all of a sudden, Christian finds a key that was hidden in his shirt. The key is called promise. And he remembers that promise will get him out of Doubting Castle. And so they escape. They escape the clutches of giant despair and Doubting Castle. And the next scene, they find themselves at the Delectable Mountains. The Delectable Mountains is a, is a huge mountain area with an orchards and vineyards and all these things that they can enjoy. And so they get refreshed. They eat they're excited. They, they yearn for heaven. They know they're, they're close to heaven. And so these shepherds come and start ministering to them. And the shepherds, the shepherds help them. And Christian says, how far are we to heaven? And one of the shepherds says, let me take you up to the mountain. So they go up to this tall mountain. And they're given what's called a perspective glass. Now, we don't know what the perspective glass is, but it was probably like a telescope type thing. And so Christian and Hopeful look through the perspective glass. And off in the distance, they see the celestial city. They see heaven waiting for them. And so they're in their excitement. They they get ready to, to, to go towards heaven. And then the shepherd gives a warning. Beware of the flatterer, beware of conceit, and beware of ignorance. Because these three things will get you off the path to heaven, the celestial city. You see, in all of us that are true believers in Jesus Christ, I think there's a deep desire down in our hearts for heaven. Sometimes this world is just too hard. There's too many difficulties. There's too many trials. There's too many tribulations. There's temptations that sometimes we would just rather go home. Let's just escape this world and let's just go home to heaven. We have, we have this longing. And I believe that's a healthy longing. I think it's healthy for us to desire heaven. Why wouldn't you desire heaven? We just need to realize that God is sovereign over when we get there. He determines when that day happens. And so I think sometimes in our lives, we can have two extremes. 
And maybe these are the extremes that are here this morning. Sometimes we find ourselves in Doubting Castle. We're embroiled in all the things that this world is, is bringing upon us. We're depressed, we're discouraged, maybe even thoughts of taking our own lives. And we feel oppressed in Doubting Castle. Other times, we may be like the, the Christian hopeful on the top of the delectable mountains. We're, we're enjoying life. Things are good. We're being refreshed. We're being ministered to. We see heaven. It's, it's within our grasp. We can almost taste it. We can almost touch it. It's just around the corner. We're longing for that. And so today, I want to pose a question to you. That I think it's a very important question. A very important question. And it's simply this. What are you truly longing for? Where, where's your heart this morning? Where's your heart's preoccupation? What are you yearning for? What are you seeking? What are you desiring? Where is your heart? Is your heart and your affection and your preoccupation upon this world and all that this world has to offer? Or is your heart, your preoccupation, your passion upon that world? the world that we will one day experience with King Jesus himself, the promise of heaven. Remember last week we looked at that God is a God of promise. He made promises to Abraham. And and what we concluded last week was that true authentic faith is being fully convinced that God is able to do everything that he's promised. That God is able to do everything He's promised. He's given us some great promises. He's promised us the Holy Spirit to live in us forever. He's promised us power to live the Christian life. He's promised us eternal life. He's given us these great and precious promises. And if you remember Abraham, he gave great and precious promises to Abraham. He was going to promise him a nation, a family, descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sands on the seashore. And we as Christians are part of that offspring, part of that heritage, because we've placed our faith in Jesus Christ. Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. We believe in Jesus Christ, it's credited to us as righteousness. Christ's righteousness is given to us, so that the moment that we trust Christ for salvation, we are forever declared not guilty. We're accepted by Jesus Christ. And so, in God's great sovereignty and grace, he's given us very great and precious promises. Promises. He's the ultimate promise keeper but yet in this world with all that's going on temptations distractions hardships sometimes it's very difficult for us to remain in a, in a state of having the right perspective the right perspective you see a lot of times what do we focus on the temporary the here and now if you remember from last week we're just living in tents remember We're not to put down roots in this world. We're not to love this world. We are strangers in a strange land just passing through to our final home. And so a lot of times we're preoccupied with the here and now. So where's our perspective? Is it worldly or is it heavenly? And I think like Christian and hopeful in the story Pilgrim's Progress, we need to take up our perspective glass and we need to look and see heaven on the horizon and have a healthy dose of the promise that god has for us in heaven a heavenly perspective you know we don't talk about heaven a lot do we have you ever heard the term the person is is so heavenly minded they're no earthly good i could believe just the opposite if our focus is on heaven it motivates us in the here and now 
to do what God has called us to do. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 11 as we're continuing to journey through this great hall of faith. We come to an interlude. The author addresses Abraham, and then he has an interlude, and then next week we're going to look at at Abraham again. But he kind of gives a little interlude here about the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Hebrews chapter 11, starting in verse 13. These all died in faith, speaking of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. These are the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. It says they died in faith. They died in faith. Now, it's interesting because up to this point, the writer of Hebrews has used the term by faith. Acting on the basis of faith, these people did some things. So we've looked at Abel. Abel offered a better sacrifice. Enoch walked with God. Noah built an ark. Abraham obeyed with immediate obedience. And now it says that they died in faith. In other words, It was according to their faith. They died in faith. In other words, they were faithful to the very end of their lives. They were faithful. They persevered to the end. And let me just say this. Salvation only comes to those who finish the race. Only to those who endure to the end. You can't just start well. You've got to finish well. Now in Emmanuel, we believe in the eternal security of the believer which means that if you're truly saved, you will remain saved. You cannot lose that salvation because God has got you in his grip. But on the flip side of that, we believe in what's called the perseverance of the saints. And this is the belief that if you are truly a child of God, he will ensure that you finish the race. He will ensure you endure to the end. By God's grace, he will give you the power to finish the race. And that's what happened to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They had the grace to be able to finish the race. They died in faith. God, by his power, will ensure that if you're a true child of God, you will finish. What does Paul promise us in Philippians 1.6? I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. So, by implication, if we're a true Christian, we will endure to the end. But here's the amazing thing about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They never received what God had promised them in their lifetimes. Did Abraham ever see the nation? Did Isaac ever see the nation? Did they ever see the descendants? Now, Jacob may be a little closer because he had the 12 sons that were the 12 tribes of Israel. But did these three men ever get to finally see what God had promised them? No, they didn't get to see that tangibly. They never got to experience that. They never got to experience what God had promised them. Notice what it says there in the text. Not having received the things promised. God had made a promise to them, but they never received it in their lifetimes. Now think about how frustrating that would be. To be promised something, but never get to experience it. Now, guys, I'm going to tell you a story about a thing that I did was really stupid, okay? So men... Young men, don't follow this pattern when you're wanting to propose to your wife, okay? I know a few months ago I told you how I proposed to Dawn. 
up on the mountains outside of Boulder. Uh, we had the scavenger hunt. We had the ring ceremony with the, with, the, with the rose and all that kind of stuff. That was the proposal. But let me tell you about a calculated mistake I made leading up to the proposal. Okay, here's what happened. And here's the problem. I can't keep a secret. And Dawn knows that. She's down there smiling at me. Okay, Dawn lived in Denver. I lived in Colorado Springs. She worked at Village Inn. So I drove up to Denver to, to, to stay the weekend with her family, and it was her 15-minute break at Village Inn. And so she comes out on her 15-minute break at Village Inn, and I say, I bought the ring. Now, in my mind, I'm just letting her know I bought the ring. In her mind, she's thinking, this is the moment Sean's going to propose on my lunch break at Village Inn in the parking lot. <laughs> and in my mind, I'm thinking, no, that's not what's happening. I'm just letting you know I bought the ring. And so Dawn was very frustrated. She's like, why are you doing this to me? So up to the point of the actual proposal, she was in turmoil determining what's going to be the moment when Sean's going to pop the question. Okay, so I made a calculated mistake just because I can't keep a secret of saying I bought the ring. Now, here's what would be really stupid. What would be stupid if, like, I told Dawn I bought the ring and then 20 years had passed I never proposed to her? I never gave her the ring. Oh, I made the promise to you, Don, but I'm never going to give you the ring. She would be frustrated. She would be angry. She would probably not want anything to do with me. Now think about Abraham here. God made a promise to Abraham, but he never got to experience it fully. What does the text say? He only saw it from afar. He only saw it from a distance. He only got to see it a long ways off. Never got to actually experience it. Now notice what it says in verse 13. But having seen them and greeted them or welcomed them from afar. He welcomed it from afar. That word welcome in the original language is an interesting word. It means to to greet someone with a kiss or a hug, to be excited when someone shows up. And so Abraham sees this promise from a distance and he welcomes it. He enjoys it. He joyfully accepts what God has for him, but he only sees it from afar. It's almost as if Abraham's on top of the delectable mountains with his perspective glass and he sees it out there. He sees the descendants. He sees the offspring. He sees heaven. He only sees it from afar, but he enjoys what he sees. He welcomes it, but he never gets to fully experience it himself. And notice what else it says at the second half of verse 13. Having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. These three men, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, confessed declared that they were, they were strangers in a strange land. They were aliens, they were exiles, they were sojourners. This was not their true home. As a matter of fact, if you go back to Genesis, you realize that they never were at home, even in the promised land. In Genesis 23, Abraham was called a sojourner, an exile. In Genesis 28, Isaac is referred to as a sojourner, as an exile. In Genesis 47, Jacob is referred to as a pilgrim. So all three of these men were strangers, were exiles, were temporary residents. Where, though? On the earth. That's interesting, because you'd think at this point, the writer of Hebrews would say they were strangers in the promised land. Because that's really what they were. They were in the promised land, but they were strangers there. But he says they were strangers on the earth. Now, that's not a calculated mistake on the writer's point. He's basically saying that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob knew that a piece of geography in Palestine was not their final home. The earth was not even their final home. They knew their home truly was in heaven. Remember last week, a city with foundations whose architect and designer is God. Notice verse 14. 
For people who speak thus make it clear they're seeking a homeland. But basically, the writer's saying, if you talk like you're a stranger, if you're an alien, if you're an exile, if you're talking like you're just passing through, it really means that you are passing through. What you're seeking is you're seeking a homeland. You're seeking a homeland. Have you ever heard the word expatriate? An expatriate? An expatriate is a person who lives in a country that's not their own. We have many expatriates in America. Think about students that come from foreign countries to to, to study at college. They come for a few years, they study in American colleges, but their ultimate goal is to go back to their home country because that's where they know the language, they know the culture, they have friends and family. They're expatriates. They come for just a few years to study, but their true heart is back at home. That's where they want to get back to. And that's the same way that Abraham, Isaac, and and Jacob were. They were seeking a homeland. The word seeking is a very, very strong word in the original language. It means to seek diligently, to seek intently, to yearn, to long, to strive for. They were striving for a homeland. Literally there in the Greek text, it's a fatherland. Seeking a fatherland, the home of their father. But notice in verse 15, I think you get great insight into verse 15. If they'd been thinking of that land which they'd gone out they would have had opportunity to return. What's the writer saying there? Remember where Abraham was from originally? Ur. Okay, you are. Ur. That's where Abraham was from originally. And what the writer's saying is Abraham's not thinking about going back to Ur. I mean, he could have very easily gone back to his home country, but that's not where he was going to go back. God in his sovereign grace came to Abraham in Ur and speaks to him and says, Abraham, pack up. Take everything. Take your family. Go to the land that I'm going to show you. You don't know where it is until you get there, but go. And Abraham obeyed with immediate obedience. He he obeyed without question. He obeyed without hesitation. He didn't want to go back to Ur. What was in Ur? It was a pagan city. A pagan city of pagan idolatry. Ur was a town of about 300,000 people that had this ziggurat-type structure, this pyramid-type structure. It is also known as a place of human sacrifices. It was a pagan, idolatrous country. And I'm sure Abraham did very well there. We know that when he left Ur, he brought many servants and animals with him. So he had a very thriving family business. Everything that was important to Abraham in his former life was in Ur. Why would he want to go back to Ur when God had called him to go to the promised land? Ur stood for everything that was against the living God. And here's the problem. For many of us, we find it very comfortable to live in Ur. How many times do we want to go back to Ur? You know, it would just be a whole lot easier if I wasn't a Christian. I wouldn't have the temptations. I wouldn't have the struggles. It would be so easy just to to chuck this whole Christianity thing and live like the world, go with the flow, blend in. I wouldn't have to deal with all this mess. I could just set up roots in Ur and go back to how I used to be. It would be so much easier. Do we ever play that game with ourselves? It would be so much easier just to go and live like the world. I wouldn't have to have all these these issues of living for Christ. And so what was Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob doing? They were welcoming the future. They were seeking a better country. They were yearning for, they were longing for heaven. And what do we do at times? We welcome, we seek, we yearn, we long for er, our former life. And so where are your affections this morning? Are your affections on this world, the idolatry and the stuff in this world? 
Or are your affections on Christ and the future home he has promised to us? You see, in verse 16, we find the true heart of Abraham. But that, as it is, they desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. They desire a better country. Yeah, the promised land was great. God, thanks for the promise. Having a nation as multitude, uh, the sands of the sea, uh, the sands on the seashore and the stars in the sky, that's great. Being a blessing to many nations, God, that's great. Those are great blessings. But that's not ultimately where Abraham's heart was. He was seeking a better country. What was the better country? It was heaven. It says they desire. Again, a very strong word in the original language. Same, same almost the same word as seek, to desire, to long to yearn, to crave, to seek heaven. And in the original text, it really conveys this lifestyle. It was a continual longing, a continual yearning, a continual preoccupation with the eternal. And again, I'm going to ask you the question, where is your, where is your heart this morning? If we're honest with ourselves, and, we, and I've had to struggle with it this week in this text, is for, for a lot of us, and myself personally, we can get so wrapped up with our gaze being on this world. Not necessarily bad things, but our preoccupation really should be with Christ and His glory. And, and, and our gaze should be upon Him. So where is your heart this morning? Where are your affections? You know what John says in First John? Listen to the words of John. Hear his pleading with us. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world... The love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and pride and possessions is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. And so what John is saying here is don't live for this world. Don't love this world. There's a lot of things in this world that will vie for your attention. Don't put down roots in this world. You are stranger in this world. You are not of this world. You do not belong to this world because there's going to be things that are going to trap you. The, the desires of your eyes, putting evil things before your eyes, the, the lust of the flesh, getting wrapped up in materialism. All these things are going to take your gaze off of Christ and so he says don't love this world in the same way that that abraham isaac and jacob didn't love this world they were looking forward to the future place that god had promised them do not love this world don't put your gaze on this world paul says it another way in colossians chapter 3 1 through 2 if then you've been raised with christ seek there's that word the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. You know, over the past few weeks, we've been looking at what it means to have authentic faith. What is authentic faith? Well, it's a faith like Abel that worships God with passion in the proper way. It's a faith like Enoch that walks with God and pleases God. It's a faith like Noah that believes the unbelievable and stands against a culture and is willing to, to, to go against the flow. It's a faith like Abraham that obeys immediately. What kind of faith are we talking about today? It's a type of faith that looks away from the allurements of this world and fixes our gaze upon Christ. That's 
true authentic faith, a faith that looks away from all this world has to offer and puts our gaze upon Jesus and his glory. Our gaze is on our true and final home, the celestial city, a faith that yearns for Christ, a faith that doesn't put down roots here, but a faith that longs for our true and final home, a faith that's not conformed to this world. As a matter of fact, Paul says in Romans 12, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. It's a kind of faith that doesn't get squeezed into the mold of this world, a kind of faith that goes against the flow, a kind of faith that says, I'm not going to be, going to be sucked into the mold of this world, but I'm going to be transformed by the renewing of my mind to live for Christ. Now, many of you have probably heard of the missionary Jim Elliott. Anybody heard of Jim Elliott? He was a missionary that went to the Akua tribe in South America. A, a violent tribe of people that had never heard the gospel. And he and his, and his young missionary friends went, and on a fateful day, down by the beach on the river, they were all speared to death. He was speared to death for sharing Christ with a people who had never heard the gospel before, so he was martyred. And earlier, when he was in college, he wrote these words in his journal. They become the famous words of Jim Elliot. And I want you to hear the echo of Abraham in the words of Jim Elliot. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Let me repeat it. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. What's he saying there? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give what I cannot keep. That's my life. I'm going to pour my life out for Christ. I'm going to live for Christ. I'm going to set my gaze on Christ. I'm going to go to an unreached people group for Christ. I'm even going to die for Christ and be speared to death because I know all along I cannot, I cannot lose what's been promised. It cannot be taken from me. Heaven is waiting for me and the glories of Christ are waiting for me. And he says, you're, you're not a fool if you live for Christ knowing that, the, that you can spend all for Jesus knowing that you have a home in heaven that he's promised for you. Even if that means giving up your life here, you've got a life waiting for you. Do you hear the, the echoes of Abraham there? I'm going I'm to spend all for Christ here, knowing that my future home is in heaven. And let me just remind you of something. This can be very overwhelming. I've been very overwhelmed by reading these Old Testament saints. This type of faith can only be produced by grace. You can't muster up this type of faith. It's not willpower. It's not pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It is a sovereign act of God where he comes and gives you this grace. Remember what happened to Abraham. He's in Ur-Ur, the backside of nowhere, in a pagan culture, living in deadness, living in sin, not even thinking about God. And God comes to him and says, Abraham, go. Shows him grace. And once God shows Abraham grace, he goes, he obeys, he, he listens, he follows. And it's the same thing with us. All of us who were living in ur we had dead stony hearts God came and he replaced our hearts of stone with hearts of flesh he came and he opened our eyes to the beauty of Jesus he came and he caused us to be born again grace came to us and once our hearts were liberated once we were freed in our salvation then God gave us the ability to follow him with reckless abandon we can pursue Jesus joyfully because we've been rescued from our sin and this this type of faith is generated by grace but I want you to notice something staggering at the end of verse 16. It's interesting, in the middle of a sentence, you've got the word therefore. And so you've got to ask the question, what's the therefore, therefore? Okay? Therefore. 
it's a conclusion. Up to this point, I'm making a point, and so therefore, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. In other words, in light of all this type of faith, A faith that doesn't put roots down in this world. A faith that notices that we're strangers in a strange land. A faith that obeys with immediate obedience. A faith that longs for Jesus. A faith that longs for our heavenly home. That type of faith produces a result. And what's the result here? God is not ashamed to be called their God. Now that's an interesting wording, isn't it? God is not ashamed. I don't think there's any other wording like that in the rest of the Bible. That God is not ashamed to be called their God. The God of who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Does that sound familiar to you? All throughout the Old Testament, God refers to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's God's special way of referring to himself as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And because of their faith, God was not ashamed to be called their God. It brought great pleasure to the living God to be called the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's staggering. And what's even more staggering, if you trace the Old Testament, it's referred more to as the God of Jacob over the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Go back and read Genesis. Which of the three, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, was the most sinister, the most sinful, the shyster of them all? Jacob. Jacob was a heel grabber. He was a deceiver. He was a sinner. He was one messed up kid. And it's amazing when you go back and read Genesis that God would even show grace to Jacob. I mean, if I, were to show, if I were God, I'd be like, Jacob, you're done. Why in the world would you show grace to this sinner? And then I stopped and thought, that's the same thing God does to us. He shows amazing grace to amazing sinners. And that's the point. He's the God of Jacob, that shyster, heel-grabbing, deceiver, sinner. God changed his name to Israel. And he's not ashamed to be called the God of Jacob. It brings pleasure to God. It's humbling. Think about that. There's nothing in us that brings God to be not ashamed of us. It brings him pleasure to be called the God of Sean Cole. Does that, is that, is that hit you? God is not ashamed to be called the God of Bill Van Pelt or of Jack Hazlip. Or of Sarah Heimbegner, trying to look out there and see, or of Angela Hutt, or of Gay Borth, or of Russell Adels, or of Glenn Burton, or, and who's up in the balcony that I can see up there because sometimes the lights blind. Annette Dancer, I see her smiling. God is not ashamed to be called your God. Does that amaze you? He's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he's not ashamed to be called your God. So this leads just to a question. If you want God to be unashamed of you, of being your God, then what do you need to do? Do you need to do something great that God can be proud of? Do you need to achieve some moral achievement that would, that would perk up God's ears and make him pay attention to you? Some heroic achievement that will cause God to be impressed by you? Some good deed that will cause God to show you favor? Is that what's going to cause God to be not be ashamed of you? Absolutely not. Those are works. If God dealt with this on the basis of that, it would be a works-based salvation. And realize this, there's no deficiency in God. It's not like God needs us. God is a self-sufficient, self, uh, self-sustaining, all-powerful, sovereign God who, by the way, wasn't lonely up in heaven, so he created us. He is the living God who does not need us. But he chose to create us, and it's amazing that he says, I'm not ashamed to be called their God. So what's the answer? How, 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 do, you, how do you have a faith 
that makes God not ashamed of you. And we've seen it all the way through this text. It's simply this. Do you long for him? Do you desire him? You see, when you long or desire for someone, it's not an achievement on your part. Longing and panting and desiring for someone is not something that, that, that lifts you up. It's something that lifts the other person up. When you long for someone, you're putting the focus upon them, their worth, their glory. And so when we pant and long and seek and desire Christ, it's all about Him. And God is pleased to not be ashamed of us when we simply love Him. It doesn't call attention to our value, but to His value. And so here's what happens. When you become a Christian, you get new affections. You get new desires. I'm very, very, very concerned about what we see in our culture today, of this easy believism type theology. This, I'm just going to try to try Jesus on for size. We've narrowed down a relationship with Christ to checking off a box or walking an aisle or some other type of thing where there's no heart transformation. If you are a true Christian this morning, you've got a new heart. And as a result, you have new affections. And you just don't add Jesus onto your life because you think he's going to improve your life. You don't try to add Jesus on to be more spiritual. You don't try him on for size. He is the king. And when you become a Christian, your whole life changes. You've got new desires, new affections, a new heart, a heart that longs for Christ, a heart that desires Jesus, a heart that wants to to serve him. And the only reason you do it is because he's your all in all. He's worth it. He is worth it. He is your king. He's not some genie in a bottle that's going to give you everything you want. You come to Christ because he alone is enough. Now, what has God promised? Notice the very last phrase here. He has prepared for them a city. And by implication, God has prepared for us a city. God has made preparations for a city. God has prepared something. Does that sound very familiar to you? God has prepared for us a home. What did Jesus say in John 14? Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have not told you that I go to what? Prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. And Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. Jesus has promised to prepare for us what? A home a city, a better country, the new Jerusalem, the celestial city. Jesus has gone and prepared for us a place. And Jesus is very clear about how you get to this place. You don't just barge into this home. Jesus is very clear. No one comes to the Father, what? Except through me. Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to heaven but through me. I'm the only way to heaven, Jesus says. Many of you have probably never heard of Henry Morrison. Henry Morrison was a missionary that spent 40 years in Africa serving the Lord. Serving the Lord for 40 years in Africa. And it was time for him to come home, he and his wife. They were going to come back to U.S. soil, and they, they, they longed to be on U.S. soil, back in their home. And so they get aboard an ocean liner coming back from Africa to America. And on that same ocean liner is Teddy Roosevelt, the president at the time. And if you know anything about Teddy Roosevelt, he was a big game hunter. 
And so he went to Africa to actually do a safari and, and to hunt. And so he was coming back on the same boat. And waiting in the New York Harbor is all this fanfare. There's a parade. There's banners. There's confetti. There's signs saying, welcome home, welcome home, welcome home. All this hoopla for President Roosevelt. And so um, Henry Morrison and his wife, they get off the boat and they see this whole big buzz for Teddy Roosevelt. And they're standing there alone on the dock of the ship with just their, their luggage, 40 years serving the Lord in Africa. They go back to their hotel room and, and Henry's very discouraged. He's very depressed. He sits on the side of, his ho- of the bed and he says, Honey, we've served the Lord for 40 years in Africa. We, we've, been, we've given our lives to missions for 40 years, and we come back to America, and not one person welcomes us home. The president gets this huge fanfare. Not one person welcomes us home. His wife puts her hand on his shoulder and says these comforting words. Henry, have you forgotten something? We're not home yet. We're not home yet. We're not home yet, but we long for that day. And there's a lot of temptations, a lot of trials, a lot of hardships in this world that we're experiencing. A lot of frustrations that come from being a stranger in a strange land. But one day, we will come home. We will experience the the ultimate promise that God gave to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We will receive that better country. And I don't know about you, but I can't wait to hear the words of our Savior in Matthew 25. When he says, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. When you hear the words of Jesus say, now you're home. Now you're home. Welcome home. And we sing, nothing compares to the promise I have in Christ. Nothing compares to the promise we have in you. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Where's your gaze? Where's your heart?